Historically speaking, this is the film I've often thought of as my least favorite MCU film, along with Iron Man 2. And having rewatched it, I kind of still agree with that statement. I mean, it's... It, in honesty, it does remind me in many ways of Iron Man 3, as weird as that may sound. There's some bits of it that are like, what? And then there's some bits of it that are like, yeah! And then there's some of it which still make me laugh, even to this very day. I, uh... This film had probably the most troubled production of the films, other than Iron Man 1, of course. So, amongst Phase 2, this one had the most troubled production. Um, Natalie Portman has made claims that she was trying to bow out, but some sources claim she was, and some sources claim she wasn't, and she herself went on record as saying that she she basically refused to be part of the MCU, which is why she was absent in Thor 3, and then at the same time she has also made statements as recently as last year about wanting to be back into the franchise, and whatever. Uh, Patty Jenkins was actually originally supposed to be the director of this film. Now... There's a thing when it comes to Hollywood. I've mentioned it before. It basically boils down to don't tell. There's a, it's a really common thing. I actually brought this up back in Iron Man 2 as well, if you've been following the MCU uh, ruminations as we go here. Because back in, Thor, uh, back in Iron Man 2, you know, there was the incident with Don Cheadle having to take over as Rhodey, and several people disagreed on the specifics of why, and blah, blah, blah. And Like I said, there's just a sort of a thing in Hollywood where you're not really supposed to say what actually happened. I mean, you, you go ahead and say something for the sake of the press, but everything is just kind of kept under wraps. Whether that's a good policy or not, that's not my place to judge. But I mention that because the official statement made by Miss Jenkins is fairly simple. It basically says, you know, I wanted to do a specific type of story, and they didn't want to do that story. They wanted to do their own story. So instead, you know, I, couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do a good job directing that, so I bowed out usually cited as creative differences. It's a nice generic blanket term, which basically means something happened, and we don't know what. Based on evidence, and the fact that this woman will later on go on to make the excellent Wonder Woman uh, film, I'm thinking that the general gist is that they had a pretty specific script in mind, and she thought that script was stupid. Because it is. This is not a good script. And she wanted to do something else or something better, and she was basically shot down on that. I don't know who shot her down, and I don't know what the conflict came from, but one way or another, I don't blame her, if I am right about this, which I might not be, for basically saying, okay, you want to do your own stupid film? Fine, I'm out. Now, uh, again, the specifics of that, eh, I'm not sure. But I keep I keep bashing the script of this film. Obviously, I'll be covering it in detail. I got two pages of notes here. That's pretty much my usual for movies is two pages of notes. But I do want to mention one thing right off the bat about the stupidity of the script because the script is kind of it it varies in tone in a way that's it's actually kind of hard for me to describe because on the one hand it's trying very hard to be more mythic. You know, going into the mythos of the ancient Asgardians and the ancient creation of the ancient universe, ancient. And then it's got spaceships and laser guns. It also tends to make things very grounded and believable in a down-to-earth fashion when it comes to character interaction. In fact, I would say char character interaction is probably one of the better aspects of the film. Then at the same time, it tries to take certain characters in the film and either basically make them into a joke, not in a good way, but make them into an unimpressive character, or never bother to develop them in any significant way, shape, or form. Nowhere is this more evident than Malekith. Although there are reports that apparently there was supposed to be more to Malekith than what we got. I'm not 100% sure about that, but, you know, again, I've heard about that, so maybe that was true. I don't know. Either way, what we got is... A weird mishmash of a film, and I this is, of course, just my opinion, but I think that's one of the biggest reasons why so many people have such an issue with it. What did you think of the film, before I even start talking about it, as ever? Curious of your guys' thoughts. One other thing I want to comment on. I know I said I'd save most of my Phase 2 discussion for uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. One of the things that has been just the weirdest thing is trying to come up with a cohesive thread amongst these films. Now, I will bring this up during Age of Ultron, but I think that, this is in my opinion, I think that's the biggest flaw with Phase 2. It's disconnected. There is a very, very loose thread connecting Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy, and 
there's a very, very loose thread connecting Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Captain America Winter Soldier into Age of Ultron, and that's it. Everything else is just doing its own thing. Ant-Man references the Avengers once. Guardians of the Galaxy is doing completely its own thing for the most part, you know. Other than the fact that they have mentioned the Infinity Stone thing. It has nothing to do with the rest of the story in any significant manner. And Iron Man 3 has nothing to do with anything, really. <laughs> Thor 2 barely has anything to do with anything. The disconnect is my biggest problem with this. Because thematically or in terms of narrative flow, in my opinion, Phase 1 really all th lined up and s smoothly flowed into Avengers. It was a clear setup, build-up situation. Here's Cap... He's pushed into the future. He's under S.H.I.E.L.D. now. Here's Stark. Here's his establishment. Here's him getting together with S.H.I.E.L.D. in Iron Man 2. And despite my issues with Iron Man 2, it did still clearly lead into Avengers. Here's even Hulk, which wasn't even intended to be part of the MCU, and I myself didn't even cover it, still had a whole, you know, Avengers initiative thing, getting Ross on board, etc. And then, of course, we had uh, the thing with Thor, which was very heavily tied. We even had Hawkeye there. And, of course, Coulson was part of that, and S.H.I.E.L.D. was part of the Thor. And that, of course, finally led into the Avengers Initiative and Avengers itself. All of it smoothly, well, mostly smoothly, flowed into the first film. By contrast, Age of Ultron feels like, and here's another film. <laughs> and these films don't really have any significance with each other. And I mention that because I debated for longer than I probably should have exactly which order I wanted to do these films in for, with regards to these ruminations. Ultimately, I decided to just do it in release order, which is what we're doing. Because, shrug? <laughs> I digress. So, myth, yes, we must have the great mythos of, of the creation of the universe. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of drop headcanon on this, because the canon as explained, to be blunt, makes no sense to me. They mentioned several times that the Nine Realms surround Yggdrasil. And as is mentioned in other films, the general idea is that Yggdrasil is basically a sector. One sector of space, in other words. It's not all of reality, all of the universe, even though they use the term the universe or universal several times in this specific film. The general gist is far more that Yggdrasil and its Nine Realms is basically the confluence of a single sector, which also happens to include Earth, so, you know, Sector Zero, effectively, to use Star Trek terms, and that this is, or excuse me, zero, zero, 001, and that this is a place that is effectively under Asgardian, let's go ahead and use the word as it is intended, rule. Now... I'm with that, but I mention that because it does kind of call into question the specifics of some of the nature of this plot. Like, was Malekith trying to use the ether to wipe out the entire universe, or just the sector? I'm honestly curious, because it would, it would legitimately make more sense. He actually, it is specific mention is made of him trying to destroy Yggdrasil itself, and all of the places we see being annihilated by it are specifically one of the Nine Realms, ergo the idea that just this sector would be affected. If I'm being honest, I doubt the filmmakers put this much thought into it. I just thought I'd mention it here because it's one of the only things that made me actually think in this entire film. Which I suppose brings me to my next point. Although, I'm going to skip over a couple of scenes here to talk about my next point. We see Thor is off trying to defend the Nine Realms. Okay. <laughs> I know that this is, again, drifting into the realm of headcanon. Although, as I've mentioned, the Nine Realms being a sector makes a lot of sense, since we know that there is space that is not a part of the Nine Realms. We see quite a bit of it in Guardians, Guardians 2, and even in Infinity War. So, what I'm looking at here is nine territories that have all been conquered by Odin back in the days when he was the god of war, alongside his daughter he uh, Hela. I almost said Hela. <laughs> right? Then, having decided to shift himself into the god of wisdom, he decided, you know, he locks away Hela somehow. And he then goes ahead and wipes over everything and erases history and just goes ahead and starts to try to rule as a benevolent di dictatorship. Now, I'm kind of with that, but it is worth noting that that kind of leads an interesting insight into this film. Because what we see is there are marauders and bands of pillagers and whatnot moving throughout the realms that Thor has been busy fighting for two years. Two years of warfare to put down all the insurrections and rebellions. And of course the Bifrost was fixed somewhere along the line here. That makes a lot more sense when you shift it from he has to safeguard the peace of the realms to 
he is one of the conquering powers putting down rebellions to their rule, which is a far more accurate view, I think. Now, I'm not saying that those rebellions should or shouldn't be put down. I'm just saying the film tries to portray this Asgardian peacekeeping effort as a universally good thing, as if it's the good guys showing up trying to restore order in, in place of the bad guys who are making it worse. And again, we don't know. The film doesn't spend a lot of time on this particular subject. But again, if you do sit and t take a step back and think about this, I mean, you've played strategy games, right? Maybe you haven't. Um, okay, I've conquered this territory, and I've conquered this territory, and I've conquered this territory, but they're rising up in rebellion. No! And they even make mention in the film that the specific reason that they're rising up in rebellion is the fact that the Bifrost was destroyed, which I credit the movie because that makes an enormous amount of sense. See... The Bifrost, and the film actually does a good job of showing, showcasing this in the intro, the Bifrost is one of the most incredible weapons in the Asgardian arsenal. It makes their forces y uniquely mobile. They can deploy troops wherever, whenever. Yeah, not time travel-wise, but, you know, I mean, with very little prep time. Asgardian troops are effectively always mobilized, to use a modern term. And... Or a real-life term. And they can just say, oh, there's a there's an uprising in this quadrant of this area because they have Heimdall. So they have Heimdall and the Bifrost. <laughs> Think about the advantages that would get. Imagine if there was a nation here on Earth that had the ability to see everywhere on Earth perfectly, instantly, and with real-time interaction, and had the ability to teleport instantly in real-time to anywhere on Earth. It wouldn't even matter if their troops or material or supplies were better than the other nations. Those advantages alone would give them supremacy. At least if they were careful about using it. And in the film, during the flashback, we actually see how effective the Bifrost is when it is utilized against the Dark Elves. He actually literally takes the ether away directly, just drops a Bifrost on the ether, takes it, and then leaves. So you can kind of see the advantages here and why it is that these nine realms could have been so relatively effortlessly conquered by Hela and by Odin, regardless of their personal power in the matter, and how it is that the realms have been relatively stable for so long up until the Bifrost is destroyed. And it's like, oh God, quick, 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 yes, we can rebel. And again, I have no idea if these rebellions are good, bad, neutral, or anything in between. We really don't get a lot of information on that. Although, like I said, the film tries to portray it as... A... My favorite little trick the film does is it's like, oh, we must fight these people, and they're all big, burly. <laughs> yeah, rah, rah. Oh, okay, we surrender. Immediately following their surrender, there's a scene where there's this light kind of airy flute music playing. And flute's the wrong word, but like a clarinet, some kind of wind instrument is playing. And that you hear kids running by laughing. And the sun's kind of setting, and it's nice and breezy. In other words, it's a scene deliberately designed, both audibly and visually, to invoke within you the fact that things are good now. So the fact that we put this down this rebellion is a good thing. Now, maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe these really are just roving marauders, the equivalent of civilization's barbarians. I don't know. But the fact that they portray it as if these are the bad guys actually kind of grates on me a little bit. Especially given that we could have had a far more interesting political situation here, which of course the film spends no more time on, because pretty much the moment after they finish this battle, this entire plot thread of the Nine Realms is gone and never comes back. Which brings me, of course, to the flashback. Like I said, I skipped over a few scenes. You know, I don't like Malekith. No offense to Christopher Eccleston, obviously, but and he himself described working on this as a, as a nightmare, like he hated working on this film. But... I think he is probably the actual worst villain we've had in the MCU. I mean, I bashed Adrian Killian all over the place, but at least the man had a little bit of presence and screen time and a decent actor helping to buoy him to the point where he is at least there. Who the hell is Malekith? I, I actually thought about timing how much screen time he had before the final battle, because I swear to God it's like nine minutes throughout the entire film until the final battle. Maybe not even that much. I should have counted his lines. That would have been a lot easier, because I, I can't have been more than 20. Anywho, so Malekith, one of the only bits of characterization we ever get for him in, in the film is the fact that he decides to sacrifice his own people so he can escape. Nice guy. <laughs> um, get, granted, Bor was apparently in, in, intent upon 
you know, genociding the race, so maybe that was a mercy? Uh Either way, at least he got to kill the people on his way out. That's good. That's good. Then Loki gets locked away. Now, Loki is, I'm just going to say this, the best part of this film. Really. In my opinion, of course, and, in, and from my perspective. Not only because Hiddleston is amazing, but because of the fact that Loki actually has an honest-to-God character arc in this film. Which is funny, because he has actually had a decent amount of characterization in basically every film he's been in. And that will continue into the future, with one noteworthy exception. And I point that out because I wonder why they never do that with virtually all of their other villains. Like, some of the villains get fleshed out a little bit, but for the most part, Marvel villains are bad guys, and that's it. Loki was a character who happened to be a bad guy at some times and at other times kind of wasn't, and he just kind of does his own thing. He is actually fleshed out. Why not do that for others? But the first thing I noticed, and I mentioned this because I noticed this even in the theater, was his eyes were different. That was actually the first time I noticed the eye thing that happened back in Avengers. And I noticed it while watching this film because I was like, wait, his eyes look different. And I went back and rewatched Avengers and was like, oh! And that's when I first thought about the, the spear mind effect theory on Loki. Funnily enough, it then took something like, God, uh, four years, I think, before that was actually officially confirmed that the scepter was influencing Loki, just like it was influencing the rest of the Avengers. Go figure. <laughs> so Loki gets back. He's no longer being influenced by the scepter, but it's worth noting the scepter was not fully mind-controlling him. It was just extending, distending, and otherwise distorting some of his actual feelings. I point that out because that's an important step to understand where Loki starts in this film. Unrepentant. He did some things that if someone had embraced him and brought him in, there's a pretty good chance he would have shown legitimate remorse for what he did. But no one other than his mother embraces him in any significant manner. His his mother is like, hey, um, what you did was wrong, and then is immediately told that she can never see him again. His father is uh, Odin. We're going to be bashing Odin a lot this film, by the way, just so you guys know. And Thor, of course, doesn't see him at all. So, no connection there. So, no one bothers to try and do anything to accept him. Now, I'm not saying they should have, of course, because he was a villain and he did cause a lot of death and murder and mayhem. But he did... But I do feel like the approach that is being done to him is a little bit too binary. And I think that's the flaws of the characters. You'll notice that, if I could skip ahead for a moment here, when Thor starts to actually embrace him like a brother... Loki noticeably and perceptively changes in his overall attitude and tone. I'll talk about more about that later, of course. Regardless, Loki's brought in, and, and he is spared from death by being sentenced instead to eternal imprisonment, which is uh, arguably worse, but whatever. So then we get to the Nine Realms thing. I've already talked about that. Um, so here's where the movie starts to lose me for the first time. Not counting the whole death of the universe thing. Um, <clears throat> the Bifrost is fixed. He, he, can, he can just teleport places, including Earth, at will. It's been two years. Why hasn't he gone to visit Jane? You know what's funny, if I could bring it up now? Later on, when he shows up and starts talking to her, there's actually a moment where he... where. <laughs> Where she says, where the hell have you been? And then he says, well, I've been off fighting a war for two years. Okay, I'm with that. And then she says, well, what about New York? He doesn't answer that one. He doesn't even mention any kind of response to New York. Instead, he just talks about now and, like, skips over the question. Okay, I'm sorry, but if you have the Bifrost, which I just finished talking up as an amazing teleportation device, I think you could pop out to visit her for a day or two every now and again. Or just to say hi. I'm actually a little bit aggravated that they bothered to write in the fact that he has been avoiding her for two years. And the best part is, near as I can tell, there's no reason for that. There's no reason for that particular inclusion into the story. You could say that it's part, it, it helped drive her search to search for him. But you can't tell me that this driven astrophysicist who had already started, you know, remember, she had gotten the whole S.H.I.E.L.D. funding thing at the end of Thor 1, and S.H.I.E.L.D. was working with her as of Avengers in that one-off line, although that's a mistake too, but whatever. 
You, you, you can't tell me that at some point along the line she wouldn't just be like, oh, hi, Thor. I, I, I found out something fascinating about Muspelheim, you know. You can't tell me she would just suddenly stop doing her research or stop trying to reach out and understand the universe just because her boyfriend decides to visit her every now and again. Anyways, so speaking of Jane Foster, we cut to her and Chris O'Dowd, which I'm probably saying wrong. I'm so sorry. I've actually never heard the name spoken out loud. Um, he's the he's the guy from the IT crowd. And I remember seeing him and be like, dude, that's... <laughs> Uh, have you tried turning it on and off again? I'm sorry. I, I am a weird fan of the IT crowd. I, I don't know if any of you guys have even heard of that show. Um, anyway, seeing him was just kind of great. He only has two scenes in the whole film, but both of them are gold. Um, they're you know they're they're chatting and talking. Darcy shows up. Um, obviously, Miss Foster has is still fixated on Thor, and even though it's been two years, she still loves him. Truly, tr tr clearly, there is a true love between these two people. Since she still loves him after two years, he still loves her after two years. Um, you know, the two of she actually tries to sacrifice her life for him more than once in this film. He constantly goes out of his way to save her more than once in this film. It is so obvious, therefore, why they'll break up in between this film and the next film. I'm sorry to harp on to this point. This is actually one of the flaws when you're doing continuity, and I'll admit this. I'm very pro-continuity. But the downside of continuity is continuity must always bow to real life, and Natalie Portman, for whatever reason, did not want to be in future Thor films. So she wasn't. I say, I say that so definitively. It's worth noting that there is some disagreement on that point. But one way or another, she wasn't in future films, at least not up until this point. Ergo, the true love of Thor's life, who was a brilliant astrophysicist and actually a nice parallel and foil to him, had to be written out of the story, and thus has done so basically without any even mention of her in Thor 3. Now, I know Thor 3 kind of had its own tone, but it's just kind of aggravating to me that they portray this in this fashion. Whatever, moving on. Why did Eric Selvig lose it? I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but remember, it's been two years. Now I know he's like, oh my god, the convergence. but And the convergence is happening now. But the only explanation he ever gives for why he lost it was, I've had a god in my brain. Which is actually funny, because if you think about it, technically he didn't. But let's not get into that. The relevant point is that he has decided to lose it. Now. Why? Now we know the reason. It's for comic relief, and because uh, Skarnsgård which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, loves to do you know ridiculous things on camera because he's one of those kind of actors. So I guess that's where they're going with this. But either way, all I can think of is... Okay. <laughs> so he's lost it. Sure. As an aside, plenty of other people were mind-zapped by the Scepter, too. They seem to be fine. Whatever. <clears throat> so... They discover the convergence, the the black hole thing, and my first thought was Portal, the game series. Now you're thinking with portals. Why are there so many shoes here? Um, that's that's a neat little thing. I'm with it. Uh, why did she interact with the ether? I know this is such a strange thing, and I hate to keep poking holes in the script, but it's basically portrayed as she happened to be there, and then she happened to happen into a portal, into someplace else, where, which happened to be the one spot where the ether was hidden, which also, given the nature of the convergence, that implies that wherever the ether was held was either on the Nine Realms somewhere, or basically at, let's call it a nexus point of the Nine Realms, which would only show up during the convergence, the point at which it's the most threatening, so I'm not sure what they were thinking on that one, but whatever. And it just, did it select her? Did it summon her? It's portrayed as if the ether has a little bit of a intelligence to it. Now this is funny because actually several of the Infinity Stones are portrayed in a similar manner. Um, and in fact, most of the Infinity Stones are all portrayed in one specific thing of having the similarity. And that is, they ex excise a cost in using them. You know, there is a significant detriment to using any of the given Infinity Stones. In the Aether's case, it slowly drains their life force. In the Tesseract's case, it just burns them up like it did with uh, Red Skull. In the, we'll, we see what the Soul Stone does later on in Infinity War. And here we see, or sorry, I guess that's everything. And there's also the one in Guardians of the Galaxy. But point being, each of the stones does seem to have this kind of intellect to it. So I could see why the Aether might have actually literally pulled her here and said, You will be my host. Free me that I might... Uh... 
Well, I'm not sure what the Aether Stone's actually after, because Malekith is the one who cares about wiping out reality. And it's mentioned several times that the Aether Stone and Malekith are kind of disconnected. Like, Malekith has obviously studied it at great length and knows how to use it to some extent. We'll talk about that later. But for the most part, the Aether Stone itself probably doesn't want to wipe everything out and darken the sector. It probably just wants to do anything other than be trapped. Food for thought. Regardless, uh, Heimdall says he can't see her. Okay. What is Heimdall's range on his vision? This lends credence to the idea that the Aether was in basically a nexus of the Nine Realms, although that itself kind of makes me question. See, here's the thing. I could buy the idea that Heimdall's vision range is basically the Nine Realms, that he can see all nine of the realms. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, it would tie into the nature of him and his position as the Watcher, or whatever you want to call him, and his ability to see within the, the domain of Asgard. I'm with that. Thor 3 actually contradicts that twice, so I'm not sure if that's actually a valid answer or not. So, um, it's also worth mentioning, I, I just point this out really quick, just, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. As we know, thanks to Thor 3 and partially thanks to Avengers, the physical galaxy, the physical space, Asgard and Earth both coexist with one with another. That, you know, it, was, it would be possible, in other words, for a spaceship to take all the Asgardian refugees and go to Earth with that. I only point that out because that rules out dimensional travel as part of the nature of the Nine Realms. It, again, leading more credits to my sector theory. Getting off track, please forgive me. So, uh, Heimdall can't see it. Okay, that's weird. And uh, she, you know, she has the ether, and the cops are like, yeah, we got to arrest you. They're so casual. Are British cops like this? I don't know. I've actually never been to Britain. Um, excuse me, we have to take you in. And the shield reacts. Now, one of the interesting things is the Aether's shield consistently shows that it has a degree of intelligence in how to defend her. That's actually one of the more well-written parts of the script overall, because in virtually every instance, maybe I missed one or two, but in virtually every instance in which someone interacts with, with her, it does react to defend if the interaction was something that is unwanted. In other words, the cop taking her in, the guards taking her away, etc. And yet when Thor interacts with her, there's no problem because well, Thor means her no harm. And there's another one later, which we'll get to. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So then the rain comes down. There's actually a, a nice scene because it's pouring rain, and yet if you're paying attention, Darcy and uh, Jane are dry. They're completely dry. Which makes sense. And then the camera pans out and shows that there's like no rain around them. Question, is that the ether doing that or Thor? I mention that because later on Darcy's like, hey, is this you? And then it stops raining. Thor makes it stop raining. So was Thor like preventing the rain on her or was the ether preventing the rain on her? Eh, food for thought. The film likes to not give answers to a lot of things, by the way. So there can be a lot of questions in this rumination. Please forgive me. So this is when we talk about how he has no excuse for New York. I've already commented on that. Moving on. They, he takes her to Asgard. Gotta admit, there's a, there's a sequence of pretty good scenes after this that kind of make me grin. First of all, I have to say that for all of the other complaints I have of the film, the interactions between Jane Foster and Thor are actually pretty good. The two have, uh, I would say, actually better chemistry here than they did in the first film. Which is funny if her comments about disliking the film are true, but regardless, they, uh, they do act well together. And I kind of like the, I wish they'd showed more of it, but there's a scene where he is taking her via the, the Bifrost to Asgard. I wish they'd shown more of her awe and wonder at being teleported like that. Because you kind of get the impression that would be her reaction. They're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great, you know. And so then they have her scanned with this device, which is a basically making resonant filaments that are reflect, reflecting, oh my god, reflecting all of the refractions off of her soul to give them a way to scan her, a, a quantum, uh, what did she call it? I wrote it down. A quantum field generator. There we go. <laughs> you always got to throw quantum in there. I do love the idea that, you know, oh no, it's, it don't, it's a very careful device. Oh, does it do this? Well, yes. Quantum field generator. It kind of goes to show that this woman is not stupid. I only point that out because that's actually, in my opinion, one of the greater character traits of Jane Foster. The fact that she is smart, like legitimately smart, and capable of thinking on her feet, and, you know, actually an expert in her field, which is nice. I wish we'd seen more of that, but, you know, whatever. So, 
<laughs> I have a note here. It says, bringing Asgard low. So, I have heard several theories to this effect, and I'm not sure what I think of them myself. But ultimately, I have to agree with the general consensus that it feels like this film was an attempt to bring Asgard down a few pegs, moralistically, uh, in terms of literal capacity and strength, and in terms of, well, their overall superiority. Because we see several, for example, the woman who was acting all snooty until, you know, she was shown up by Jane by understanding what she was talking about. Uh, there's a scene where Odin is incredibly rude to Miss Foster, which is just, like I said, Odin's just a dick in this whole film. It's very kind of strange, actually. Um, Heimdall, of course, can't see the cloak, even though we can see the cloak with our normal eyes. Um... <laughs> The fact that they, they bring in these these prisoners and don't take off their equipment or search them for weapons. We do that in real life, you know. The fact that they have basically no guards in the prison area until an actual outbreak happens. The fact that they have no backup field generator for this shield, which has to be activated by Heimdall way out there, by the way. Um, the fact that they have no fleet to speak of. They've got turrets. My point is that in multiple aspects of this film, they show how the Asgardians are not as good as they thought they were. And again, bringing them down to the point where they're not the good guys, but instead more like the superior guys who occasionally happen to be good. Now, Sif's cool. Again, I wish we saw more of her. Uh, Thor is cool. Loki's debatable. And Frigga is cool. And that's basically it, as, as far as they're presented. Although, actually, I take that back. Heimdall's cool, too. I forgot about that one. Heimdall's pretty cool. And the the warriors, well, they're cool for all two scenes they're in. I cannot be the only person who laments the absence of basically all of the ancillary characters in this film. Like, they're there, briefly. They're there even less, even more briefly, I should say, in Thor 3, so I suppose that's just a trend. Because like they, were, they had a decent presence in Thor one, barely any presence in Thor two, and they're they're like they've got like one scene in Thor three. Anyways, Sif's not even in Thor three. Um, so uh, why is Odin this much of a dick to her? Can anyone give me a real answer to that? Now I've already given you my answer. It's because Odin is not the good guy. He is not as as much upon his his pedestal as he would otherwise be portrayed as prior to now. That's my answer. Remember that he, this is the woman he is talking to is the woman his son loves and has been pining after for two years. That he went after immediately as soon as there was an issue and brought her back. Now granted, yes, he, he betrayed, excuse me, disobeyed his father in doing so, so his dad's probably a little bit mad. But the fact that he insults her in such an overt way, pretty much flat out calls her an animal at the table of proper people. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that she was black and he was white and he made that comment as if she... He made the same basic comment that as if a goat is a table. Picture that. Because that's the level of racism or speciesism, I guess, actually, in this case, speciesism that he is showcasing. What? Anyways, don't worry. I'm going somewhere with this, all this Odin stuff. But moving on. So then Frigga, she's cool. She's actually nice. Frigga is, of course, uh, decent in just about all of her presentation. And once again, my only complaint is that we don't get enough of her. Because she's awesome in every scene she's in. Especially when she goes to talk to Loki. Let's de derail and talk about Loki for a second. As I mentioned, unrepentant. But the other interesting thing is that Loki just can't bring himself to be honest. He isn't honest to Odin. He isn't honest to Frigga. There's even a point, he's not my father. And then she says, am I not your mother? And then Loki is just... Uh, I love Hiddleston's acting, I really do, because you can see he's just, he's doubling down on the lie, you know, like a kid would. And she says, aww, and reaches out to him, and he reaches out as well, and she's not there. And he has basically just told his mother that he doesn't think she's his mother. That's also the last time they talk, by the way. There is a brilliant scene later on in the film, please forgive me for skipping ahead after Frigga has died, where... He, there's no dialogue, which is, which is probably the best part. Someone shows up, Loki looks over, and just kind of nods. The guy leaves, and then Loki just kind of stands up and stands there, and then destroys half the room in just one gesture. 
And the next time we see Loki, he is in, in disheveled, bloodied. You can almost get the idea that he has literally been kicking and punching at stuff in his room until he has literally started injuring himself, and everything is in tatters. That image right there gets across so beautifully just how much this has affected Loki. Because obviously she was his mother. She obviously... It's implied that Odin and Loki never got along all that well, even before Loki learned the truth. But it is definitely stated multiple times that Loki definitely got along well with his mother. His mother, in fact, taught him magic. In fact, you'll notice, and this film does a good job of this, Frigga at multiple times uses the exact same illusions, magic, and even fighting style with the dagger and the, the lithe thing that uh, Loki does. So we get the very strong impression that while Odin trained Thor, Frigga trained Loki. And, well, obviously that's just a, a more professional connection, but the implication is there that Frigga really did embrace her son. Of course she did. And of course he did in return. Of course he cared in return. Now, that doesn't make him innocent or blameless, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. What I do want to mention is that he says, you might want to try the stairs on the left. It has since been confirmed by official interviews that, yeah, Loki is aware that him telling uh, Algrim to do that directly led to Frigga's death, and he is aware of that. And that's not a comforting thought. So, there's a bit where Frigga has basically t taken in Jane Foster, because Frigga has a brain, and, <laughs> and actually wants to take care of this woman, who obviously her son cares about, because she's actually a good mother, unlike Odin, who is not a particularly good mother. And there's this great bit where Frigga says, oh, yes, I'm worried about you, Odin, go do this thing, blah, blah, blah. And then she walks off, and grabs a sword or a knife or something and then says, I want you to do everything I tell you exactly as I tell you. And Foster's response is immediately, yes, ma'am. My sister loved that scene. I saw this in the theaters with my sister. She was sitting right next to me. And I heard her go, oh, yes, because there's just a level of connection there which I really enjoy. Basically, this is Jane Foster recognizing that things are serious and someone who has a degree of competency is telling her to do something. And her reaction is, you got it as a smart person would. So it's a nice portrayal of Jane, and it's a nice portrayal of Frigga. But then, of course, Frigga you know, makes the illusion happen and, and goes and tries to... Malekith has basically one of his only actual scenes with Frigga, who's also about to leave the film. I'm sensing a trend here. What I like best about that scene is the idea is that Frigga is actually more than a match for Malekith. And I say the idea. I'm pretty sure she would have defeated Malekith, if not for Algrim. Uh, I'll talk about the, both of those in just a second. But then, you know, death! Ah, she dies. And it is actually a pretty powerful scene. They do spend a lot of time covering it. Oh my goodness. This is a good time to talk about Malekith, though. I, I would like to talk about Malekith really quickly, if I may. Am I the only person who finds him pathetic? Obviously, he's what I consider to be one of the worst villains because there's just nothing to him. But I also think he's one of the most pathetic villains. He has no superpowers or abilities of any significance. He has a small army. very. He has a squad that he has at his control. One ship and its complement fighters. That's it. In fact, to be 100% blunt, one of the things I noticed in this film, especially rewatching it, is that if not for Algrim, he would have had nothing. He would have been completely outmatched by everyone he fights constantly. So he has no characterization and he poses no threat, except for the curse thing, which I'll talk about in a moment. He also is bested almost constantly, has no personality, and his only real motive is, I must return it to the dark. Ah. Yeah, no. But I suppose we should also talk about Algrim here. Now, you're probably thinking, who the hell's Algrim? You keep mentioning the same. That's the cursed guy. The guy goes, and then, like, fuses with his armor. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Fusing with your armor. Here's the thing. The way the cursed should work, in my opinion, is like an Archon over in StarCraft. For those of you who have never seen any of my StarCraft lore stuff, the idea is an Archon is two Protoss fused together to form a supremely powerful being that's energy is so strong, you know, that there's a reason it's the Super Doom unit, that it burns itself out. And that in lore, it will only last for a few minutes, maybe an hour, and then it's gone, right? That I could have bought for the Cursed. 
that it's literally a last-ditch, okay, I will kill myself, but I will also take down all these enemies kind of a thing. You know, that's sort of a suicide bomber mentality. I'm with that. Not suicide bombing, don't do that. But I am with the mentality, the idea of this thing being a temporary boost. However, here's the problem. Algrim takes the thing, powers himself up, and then beats everyone constantly and never has any detriments whatsoever. There's no cost. And that makes Algrim cheap, in my opinion. Whenever you make a villain show up who is just stronger than everyone else, you have to either have some kind of explanation for it, or some kind of cost for it, or some kind of way that makes it flow into the narrative. Otherwise, what you're doing is introducing someone to be a threat, and for no other reason. This is why I call, I call Algrim cheap. This also then further makes Malekith even more pathetic, because the only thing that makes Malekith any kind of a threat at all is Algrim. And he's cheap. It's like, it's the threat of the weak thing all over again. I talk about this constantly in my Star Trek videos. It's like, hey, I'm this guy you've never heard of before, but I can defeat you effortlessly. <laughs> Remember, this guy crushes Thor in a one-on-one -on -one fight later on in the, in the... Svartalheim? No, that's not right. The Dark Elf place. I don't know which Heim it is. He just crushes him. And he effortlessly, he, he destroys the barriers which are keeping them. He t t wipes out all of the guards in his way. He And then he crushes Thor, like again, without effort. He wins every encounter. And there's nothing. Like, he doesn't even get injured on the way. He's just, yep, nope, I'm fine. Now, I know that in the interest of total fairness, if I was willing to give this uh, movie any credence, which I am not, then we could say that maybe he does only last so long and the events of the film take place in such a short period of time that we don't get to see him burning out. But there are ways, visually speaking, to showcase the idea that he is burning out. You could have just had a few seconds of him just going... As, as the flames get hotter and make it so that the red veins thing gets more and more visible each scene he's in to show that he is basically burning out. You can do these kind of visual shorthands even in a film, but they do none of this. Instead, he's just, he's just the Hulk. <laughs> I am the Hulk. Yeah, crush, crush. And he's eventually destroyed by a black hole grenade. Whatever. <laughs> I do like how Loki defeats him other than Thor, but I'm getting off track. So... Then Odin really goes overboard. There's a point in which Thor actually directly compares Odin to Malekith. Odin's only response to that is to say that I am going to win. There's an earlier scene in the film, I'm pretty sure this is on purpose, where Odin is describing how Bor, his father, wiped out the Dark Elves, like annihilated their entire race. He says it twice. And both times there's just a little bit of satisfaction in it, like he's grinning almost as he says it. That's interesting to see that, and to see that portrayal. Um, and again, it kind of gets across the idea that Odin isn't the good guy, which I'm with, by the way. He doesn't have to be a bad guy, he just has to not be the good guy, because I kind of like the idea that Odin has his own flaws and weaknesses emotionally, morally, and that this is something that he just has never quite come to terms with. Indeed, his, all of his actions for the entire rest of the film are actually as an antagonist to Thor and his members. He has actually effectively become more of a villain than Malekith has. And he has more characterization and reason to do so. After all, he is, he is directly grieving the death of his, his wife of however many years. And he is also bemoaning the fact that he is powerless to defend his realm against a threat that he thought was wiped out years and years ago. And all the time his son is just doing God knows what. And his other son is in prison because he's evil. Ugh. You can kind of see how all of this is basically breaking Odin down. Given the fact that Odin is so close to the end of his life, as we'll see in, in future events, it, basically he's getting old. You know, Odin sleep, right? We saw that in Thor 1 as well. Given how far towards the end of his days he is, it makes sense to me that the years have slowly just kind of started crushing him bit by bit. We see a little bit of this in this episode, honestly, this episode, this film. Honestly, if it wasn't for Anthony Hopkins, I'm not sure any of this subtlety would actually have portrayed on screen. So I don't know how much of this is in the script or not. What I do find interesting is this perspective is extremely important because it adds context to what happens next. Thor basically repeats his plan from Thor 1. You know, the one that was reckless and stupid. Nearly got a bunch of people killed, nearly restarted a war, and nearly made everything worse. But back then, Odin was in full c capacity of his uh, mental faculties. And here he is clearly not. 
So the situation is actually quite different. And in my opinion, this is actually one of the better points of the film, as strange as that may sound. Because Thor decides to go do the same thing as in one, but for completely different reasons. He is doing what he is doing because he has actually analyzed the situation and recognizes that his leadership is faulty and that their plan is bad and that they need to go do something about this. Now, funnily enough, Thor's plan did actually fail, which is a nice touch, just like it did in one. But he is doing it for much better reasons than he did in one. And Odin is opposing him for far worse reasons. So... (laughs) He, it's also worth noting that Thor specifically goes out of his way to consult his friends on this plan, rather than just kind of go ahead and do it with his own stubborn pig-headedness. Again, a shift between his one portrayal and his two portrayal. This, of course, leads to Heimdall being kind of awesome. I, I'm sorry. I, I, again, wish we had more of Heimdall, because he is awesome in basically every scene he's in. But uh, I also... I'm a big fan of Ildris Elba. That's not obvious. But I do like how he's like, I need to inform you of treason. Mine. Here's my sword. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, Loki is... is. There's actually a really, really good scene between Thor and Loki. As I mentioned, there's good character interactions. And Loki is just a universal positive in this entire film. We see... The, the visual presentation of Loki as he's disheveled in his, his room is awesome. The, the set designer deserves huge credit for that. And Hiddleston deserves huge credit for that. The way he's slouching on the wall... It's a very specific slouch. He is specifically just defeated, deflated, and has nothing left in him. And the way he portrays that is actually, it's actually harder to do that than it sounds, because you have to portray that while basically not moving against the wall. And then, of course, you know he goes along with it, and they're walking off. And then he does a few flashes, and then we see Captain America, which is a funny little scene. Oh, yeah! A lot could be said about that scene. I'm only going to add two of my own thoughts into the mix. I've heard plenty of people debate that scene many times. First and foremost, it has been said, although this is some, the weirdest thing because I've had trouble confirming this, but this is one of three scenes that Joss Whedon stepped in and actually wrote, and it shows, because just about everything about his presentation there is is very Whedon in terms of style. But I also mentioned this because he only changes his voice, or Thor's voice for that matter, when he changes into Captain America. Now, obviously, this is so that, you know, uh, oh God, uh, I can't think of his name. Oh, Chris Evans. This is so Chris Evans could actually get act- actor credit for this because an actor who has no lines doesn't actually get the same things billing-wise thanks to the, the rules of the Screen Actors Guild. But point being, we get to see that little tidbit. I also want to mention, though, the fact that he cho- chose Captain America specifically. And I mention that because this is probably me reading way too much into this, but Whatever. Loki is someone who has a huge ego, and partially because he has always been so much lesser. I always ever lived in your shadow. I only ever wanted your respect, you know, right? So, Loki is someone who constantly feels the need to push himself up, because he himself has been pushed so far down so often. This actually helps to inform a lot of his character arc between Thor 1 and Thor 2. And the fact that he earns Thor's legitimate respect is something that's showcased and honestly changes his opinion and perspective in Thor 2, as I'll talk about in a moment. But here, well, Hulk beat the crap out of him, right? Thor beat him. Uh, Widow was able to outmaneuver, outsmart him. Um, Iron Man was able to outmaneuver him, right? So that just kind of leaves, well, Hawkeye... (laughs) And Captain America as the only two people that he feels like he is actually better than, and thus feels more comfortable mocking and presenting himself as superior to. And of course, between the two, I think he would probably go for Cap first, because, you know, again, it's the ha, yeah, I'm so awesome kind of a thing. Just a little bit of, of reading too much into it. So they escape. Woo! Um, the escape sequence I don't have much to say about. It is kind of nice to see how it kind of folds together, and, and, and they, they zoom around the city, and then they go down to the skiffs. Suddenly we're, we're, we're on Tatooine with, the, with these hover skiffs, but whatever. No, what I want to talk about is they actually managed to get out. There's a great line Loki has, if it was easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> it's, it's a great little tidbit. But there's a lot of really great banter between Thor and Loki, which I'm just going to comment on briefly, because... It showcases that these two have a very unusual relationship, but it is still nevertheless a positive relationship between the two, that there is an actual fondness and affection between the two. It was damaged, obviously, 
It was damaged because Thor was a prat for forever, and then it was damaged because Loki went way overboard in trying to accomplish that. And again, I want to stress this. I'm not calling Loki a good guy, but I have a hard time calling Loki evil. I really do. And a lot of that is really showcased when they're flying over Dark Elfheim. And there's a scene, which is also written by Joss Whedon, where Thor and Loki are just chatting with each other. And it gets to the point where they actually start fighting. And Thor pulls himself back because, you know, Mother wouldn't want us to fight. And then his, Loki's response is, well, she wouldn't exactly be surprised. Thor treats Loki with decency and a degree of respect for, for these scenes and the upcoming scenes. And Loki, I know I've already said this twice, but it really bears repeating because this is a critical moment for him. It's probably the first time anyone other than his mother has actually reached out to him. And in fact, it is Thor, someone who has usually degenerated him or put him down for most of their time together. And instead, Thor is now actually reaching out to his brother. He has a wonderful line. I wish I could trust you. And in that line, Loki sees that there is someone who legitimately cares about him there and who is willing to see him as an equal, that he needed him. And so now Loki, whose ego is more satisfied, and who now feels more accepted by the family that he never really got to have, well, he is willing to do more than he otherwise would, which leads me to the scene. So, there is a scene where Loki turns on Thor. I didn't buy that for a second, by the way. I just want to make that clear. Even in the theater, I was just like, no. <laughs> no. Don't buy it. <laughs> but I mentioned this because... Of course, the best. I didn't buy it at all, but the fact that he said, oh, do you think I ever cared about Frigga? Yeah, no, he, he's lying. No, what, uh, what I want to say, he obviously has this whole plan, which he goes along with. And notice at multiple points, he goes out of his way to protect Jane Foster. At one point, at the risk of his own life, Thor actually saved him from the black hole thing. And if he hadn't, Loki would have actually died. I only point that out because, again, Loki is not a good person. But I think when someone is willing to work with him at an equal level, he is far more accommodating and far more of a team player than he otherwise is portrayed as. Thus, his willingness to basically pull down, put down himself to save one of the other members of the team. Now, Thor, of course, saves him. And then, you know, the fight with Algrim happens, which I've already commented on that. Whatever, moving on. <laughs> um, and then... And you notice I'm not even talking about Malekith in the scene. What is there to say? So Malekith is there. Anyway, so, you know, Loki defeats Algrim. And this is something I want to talk about extensively. Did Loki plan this death? Or did he impro improvise this death? Because, spoilers, Loki doesn't die here. I mean, even the film itself gives that away. He is impaled, and he survives. So... Do you think that basically that was Illusion him who impaled, uh, or actually what it would probably more like he probably impaled Algrim on the sword and then backed up and then and then basically cloaked himself and Illusion him stayed there to be impaled? I could buy that, but my point is I actually have the weirdest feeling that wasn't planned. Obviously Loki was looking for every opportunity to escape, but he had no idea when or where it would come to be, and faking his own death is probably the best overall way to do that. And I mention that as well because this also shows Loki something that, as weird as this may sound, he may not otherwise see. Only by lying can he see the truth of Thor. Because only by faking his death can he now see how much he actually means to his brother. Now I point this out because this is also echoed in a future scene. Twice, actually. Forgive me for skipping ahead. As he's laying there, Thor is obviously distraught over this. Actually, starts up another storm as a consequence. And in that moment, Loki understands that his brother did really love him. And I personally like to think that this is the moment which Loki finally accepts his brother. And in fact, Loki will be pretty good with his brother from this point onwards, actually, in the future films. And I think it's because of this moment. Obviously, they have started to bond a little bit more. But here he sees, truthfully, when Thor thinks he is actually dead, he is grieving. He is actually hurt. He is like, oh my god. you. And as a consequence of that, and of course there's that wonderful, wonderful line, I didn't do it for him. Before I go any further, who do you think he did it for? I've only heard two theories about that one, and I like both of them, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think he did it for Thor. Vengeance is nice and all, but 
I think he was willing to sacrifice himself for Thor. Sentimentality. Now, <laughs> getting back on track. Thor is, of course, grieving. We skip forward a little bit, and he comes back in the, in the guise of a guard to report to Odin. He says, hey, you know, Loki's body was found. Now, obviously, he then ensorcerals Odin and then sends him off to be in a, a nursing home on Earth. But I bring this up because I like to think, and we don't know this for certainty, but I like to think that Loki specifically wanted to know what Odin thought of him. He knows what Thor thinks of him. Now he wants to know what Odin thinks of him. For real. Your son is dead. You'll notice Odin doesn't give much of a reaction to that. I think that's important, given what comes up in the future. And, skipping forward again, there's a scene where Thor is talking to Loki, thinking it is Odin. And you'll notice Odin is far more forgiving and generally positive in that scene than he has been in the entire rest of the film. Which makes sense, because it's actually Loki. But what I also want to point out is if you close your eyes and think about every line coming out of Loki's mouth, a lot of what he says makes a lot more sense. Most notably, um, he does get the praise, obviously, from Thor. And, of course, he, he's got the huge ego thing. But he also praises Thor in return, more than once. And he actually, he clearly manipulates him. He's, he was, you know, oh, you want the throne? But, of course, Thor doesn't want the throne. Instead, he gives him his freedom. But he also doesn't exactly forbid him or cast him out or try to take Molnir or anything else because, I mean, he can't. But there's a lot of... He says he's quite fond of him, basically. And it is my just my impression, but I like to think he was not lying when he said that. Anywho. <clears throat> so then we have the big scene. da 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 <laughs> Now, after Loki's death... What happens is the film does something weird. Now, I noticed this when I first saw this in the theaters. This time will be my third time watching this film. And when I say will be, I mean it has been. This was my third time watching this film. And during this particular watching, my impression has been reaffirmed. While the film has tried to be lighthearted in tone and slightly comedic, kind of how Thor 1 is and Thor 3 definitely is, for the most part it's been a far darker, more serious work that just has kind of failed with the comedy factor for the most part. Now, of course, whether something is funny or not is up to the individual. But my opinion is that basically none of the film really made me laugh up until they go into the cave. And all of a sudden, the whole film just starts being funny. They're doing this big final clash against Malakath, the doom, doom guy, and Algrim, who's... Oh, no, Algrim's gone. And, but Malekith has the ether, so he's actually a threat now. <laughs> you gotta give him something to be a threat. And the whole film just starts being funny. Like, out of nowhere. She calls up, and it's like, oh, Chris O'Dowd! Again, I'm probably screwing up his name. Yeah, hey! And there's the cave of convenience. Why are there so many shoes here? And Thor just kind of politely hanging up his hammer over there, you know. And then... Uh, you know, the, the fight actually starts. Again, as usual, I don't have much to say about a specific fight scene, but this is actually one of my favorite final conflict fights within the MCU. No joke. Not because it's big or grand or epic, but because it makes me laugh consistently. Even this time, I laughed several times throughout this one. The crowd of onlookers were like, oh my gosh, look, and, and Jane's like, what are you doing? You've got to get out of here. And they're like, you're kidding. That's Thor out there. Look, he's waving his hammer and everything. Click, click. And, um, you know, there's teleporting people all over the place, and, uh, Darcy and Ian and uh, and and Selvig are all trying to to contribute in their own strange ways. Darcy and Ian just show up making out for no for no perceivable reason. Oh, you saved my life! The hammer, they 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 he shoots out the hammer and then he gets sucked into a portal and the hammer just kind of goes whoop <laughs> out into orbit and then he ends up back on Earth. So the hammer's like, oh right right, he's here now. I wonder if it would have gone all the way. What's the speed limit on the hammer? I wonder. There's also this great bit where they, they, they slam down the thing and they're just sliding down the glass like this is a Looney Tunes film. And, uh, oh my god, Darcy, Salvik, Ian, Mew Mew! He gets on the train. Alright. It's three, it's three more stops. Okay. To, to Greenwich. <laughs> Anyways, I don't want to just summarize the whole scene, but at multiple points, the whole finale made me laugh. Now, I'm with that, but I, and that's probably one of my favorite overall moments, moments, scenes, that's not really right either, sections of the film, because it was funny. 
But I should also point out that the fact that it's funny really drives home a point I've already made, that Malekith really is pathetic. I got one more point to say about Malekith being pathetic, and that's the fact that he has the ether, which is the reality stone, and he kind of attacks with crystal tendrils. Okay, that didn't do much. I'll attack again with crystal tendrils. He doesn't do anything with it. I, I, this guy is supposed to have the mastery of the ether stone, that he is capable of using this thing in ways that other people can't, that it would burn out other souls, and yet he's pathetic. He is barely up to Thor's level in this entire encounter. Barely. Keeping in mind, Algrim was crushing Thor like a bug earlier. Also, while I'm on the subject, I should also mention that he dies with one of his ships falling on him, which is admittedly appropriate, considering how he had he, how he killed his own people, but, you know, whatever. So he's dead, woo, and the convergence ends. Even the fighters come back, yay. Where are the Avengers? You could argue that Thor is more suited to this kind of high-scale threat than most of the other Avengers, and I would agree with that, but where the hell are the Avengers? Where's S.H.I.E.L.D.? Remember, there was an official police report about, about Jane Foster disappearing into reality and accidentally sending off an energy th- pulse. And Thor. Where the hell is S.H.I.E.L.D.? I know, I know. We can't expect continuity in the MCU. As I said at the beginning, I feel the lack of continuity in Phase 2 is one of the biggest things that detracts from it for me personally. Just my opinion. So, look at my notes here. I don't have much else to say. Obviously, you know... Foster caring this much about Thor is, you know, why they break up immediately off camera. <laughs> I already made fun of that. I already talked about Loki and Thor, which was good stuff. And then we have the Collector show up, who someone who actually will show up in Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, this is the old, one of the only points of real continuity in this entire work. I could be mistaken, but to my knowledge, this is the first time that on camera they have acknowledged these things as Infinity Stones. I point that out because there was a theory for a while that the Tesseract was an Infinity Stone, and there were conflicting reports and different interviews about that, and blah, blah, blah. Having this confirmed on screen, in dialogue, two Infinity Stones in one place, thereby confirming that both the Tesseract and the Aether Stone are Infinity Stones, I'm with that. This, of course, then began a years-long debate about which stone was which. <laughs> so, one down, five to go. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, such as they are. I will see you guys next time for a film that has nothing to do with this one. (laughs) See you around, guys.